or you may be seated. If you would turn with me to the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi, chapter 3, we're going to read verses 1 through 4, Malachi 3, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. And he will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and of Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. The title of this message is He will purify the sons of Levi. He will purify the sons of Levi. And this this is a tremendous section of scripture that we've read here. It's filled with many wonderful truths concerning the coming of the Messiah and his work amongst his people. And I'll just go ahead and tell you the main thought of what I hope to present here this morning. And this is taking these verses in a sense that I believe the New Testament would have us take them. And that is, Christ has promised to come to his temple, that is, Christians both individually and corporately, purifying the sons of Levi, refining them in their love so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. That's what we're going to look at today. But before we go into that, let me just give you a bit of historical background to this book of Malachi. He was a prophet, Malachi was a prophet in Judah 100 years after the Babylonian captivity. The people had come back to the land um, and reestablished themselves as a nation. They, for one thing, they'd rebuilt the temple. Now this would be 400 years before the coming of Christ, before the Messiah. So 100 years after the Babylonian captivity, 400 years before Christ. And like I said, the temple had been rebuilt, but the people were actually turning away from God. And this book is a, a warning to them. Malachi's name means my messenger. If you were reading it in Hebrew, that's what his name means, my messenger. And in this book, Malachi rebukes the Jewish people for specific violations of God's covenant. Things like offering worthless sacrifices. They were bringing uh, deformed, blind, sick animals to to sacrifice. Uh, He rebukes them for divorce. He rebukes them for marrying foreign wives. Uh, for not tithing, uh, for injustice towards widows and orphans and aliens, that type of thing. 
uh, Malachi brings up against the people. <clears throat> but he specifically singles out the priests. God has him really zero in on the priests. And I just want to read a section here if you're there in Malachi chapter 2, verse 7, <clears throat> verse 7 through 9. For the lips of the priest should preserve knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is a messenger of the Lord of hosts. But as for you, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by, by the instruction you have corrupted. By your instruction you have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I also have made you despised and abased before the, all the people, just as you are not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality and in instruction. So he's saying, uh, you're not doing what a true priest should do. A true priest should serve as God's messenger. You see that there in verse 7. But these priests, Malachi said, you've, you've corrupted the covenant of Levi. Why does he say it that way? Well, the Levites were the tribe from which the priests and the keepers of the temple came. And he said, you're not keeping that covenant that God made with you to be his special representatives as priests. This covenant of Levi involved a perpetual priesthood for the sons of Levi. And we won't take time to look back at that, but if you want to look it up later on in Numbers 18, 21 through 23, and Numbers 25, 12 through 13, you see that this covenant that God made with his tribe was be a perpetual covenant, but they broke that covenant. These Jewish priests had violated the covenant through their disobedience, and they for, therefore they were no longer God's messengers. They were, in fact, under God's curse. You see that in chapter 2, <clears throat> beginning with verse 1. And now this commandment is for you, O priests, if you do not listen and if you do not take to heart, take it to heart, to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have cursed them already, because you are not taking it to heart. So he says, far from being the messengers of the covenant, you're under a curse from God now because of your disobedience. <clears throat> These Jewish priests had violated the covenant through their disobedience, and therefore they were no longer God's messengers. Well, it seems appropriate that this book is the last book in the Old Testament because God tells the people he will no longer accept sacrifices from the Jewish priesthood. You see that in chapter 1, verse uh, 10. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altars. He says, just stop all this religious stuff you're doing because it's... You're not obeying me. You're doing all this uh, stuff in the temple, all, all these rituals and things. He said, I wish somebody just shut the gates and stop it all because your, um, your, your fires are useless that, to, that uh, you're kindling. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. So he just says, I'm done with this. I'm done with this system because of your disobedience. 
this this section actually is an answer. The section that we've read here this morning in chapter 3 is actually an answer to the question at the end of chapter 2. In verse 17 it says, they're, they're saying to God, where is the God of justice? Like God's not being just, God's not being righteous. That's what the people were saying. Actually, God's saying, no, you're the ones not being righteous. God, God will judge justly, but it will not be as you suppose. In other words, they're saying, we want the God of justice to act. God says, I'm going to act, but it's not going to be the, what you think. Uh, <clears throat> they thought God should bring judgment on their enemies and make everything good for them. Actually, he was going to judge his own priests and his own people. because of their sin. But this book is not just about judgment. It's also a book of hope because it it prophesies of a restored priesthood that will present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. That's what we read here in verse 3, chapter 3. He will set as a smelter and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and like silver, so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. This restored priesthood will take God's true message, not just to Judah, but to the nations. I realize I'm skipping, I'm skipping all around the book to try to give you a feel for it, but... Anyway, back in chapter 1, verse 11. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be praised. My name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. He says, "This this is the way it's going to be. This is what I'm going to do. There's going to be offerings going up to my name all around the world. Uh, His name will be great among the nations. And this is a tremendous truth that he's uh, presenting to us here. Sacrifices of praise and offerings will be given to God throughout the earth, not just in Judah, but through the whole earth. As we see, as we shall see in this prophecy, this actually, what we're looking at here actually concerns the New Testament church as God's royal priesthood taking his message to the whole world and offering that church that has now gone all around the world is offering sacrifices, spiritual sacrifices to God daily, all the time, all around the world. It's a tremendous portion to think in terms of what God has done through the church. Offering spiritual sacrifices, these offerings in righteousness, uh, things like the fruit of our lips, praise to God, things like doing good, things like sharing. This is from Hebrews chapter 13. We're told about these spiritual sacrifices that the church is continually offering up. So in this section that we're looking at today, Malachi tells us how this will come about, how this great expanse of the praise to God and worship of God and offering to God is going to come about. This, this is what he's explaining to us here or telling us in this section that we started out with this morning. 
we read here that God will one day send another my messenger. I say another because Malachi's name means my messenger. But chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I am going to send my messenger. If you're reading, if you're reading in Hebrew, that's say Malachi. My messenger. And he will clear away before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. So, um, God's going to send another my messenger. And that messenger will prepare the way for the messenger of the covenant. Now, don't get lost here. We're talking about two different things. There's my messenger that's coming, and he's going to prepare a way for the messenger of the covenant who will suddenly come to his temple. So what we're saying is the first messenger is a forerunner to the messenger of the covenant. Now, I hope I haven't lost you. If I have, just yell or something. I'm <laughs> And I'll try to make it clearer. Let's see if we can go on here. <clears throat> we learn from the New Testament that this first, my messenger, is talking, I'm going to send my messenger, is actually John the Baptist, who, who came to prepare the way of the Lord. So just one verse, uh, all the Gospels bring this out, but let's just look at one in Mark chapter 1. <clears throat> Mark chapter 1 and uh, verse, well, we'll start with verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, and he will prepare your way. Now, that's not actually in Isaiah. That's quoted from Malachi where we just, just read that first part. But this next part is from Isaiah. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. And then it goes on and says, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance. So these verses refer to John the Baptist. Verse 7. And he was preaching and saying, After me one comes who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you in water, but he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. So John the Baptist was a forerunner of, of Christ. And this was prophesied in the book of Isaiah. Uh, let me just read that to you. This is in Isaiah chapter 40, and just a couple verses here. A voice is calling... Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain, and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So, Mark takes those verses from Isaiah and the verses from Malachi and combines them and says this refers to John the Baptist. And there's no question about this. <clears throat> John the Baptist himself recognized that those verses applied to him. He says this, says this of himself, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. So 
the point we're making here is that that this my messenger, this one, this one that came before the Messiah, is John the Baptist. Uh, I don't, I don't want to go into this this time because it just add probably more than we can assimilate at this point. But actually, the book of Malachi tells us that this John the Baptist fulfilled another scripture here in Malachi, which has to do with Elijah. If you turn over to chapter 4 and verse 5, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. So here's here's a prophecy of uh, somebody else coming before Christ. Well, Elijah, but we find out in the New Testament that that refers to John the Baptist also. But like I say, I don't want to get sidetracked on that. If you want to look it up, it's Matthew 17, 10 through 13, Luke 1, verse 17. shows clearly that those verses do apply to John the Baptist. So that's the my messenger that is coming before this messenger of the covenant. So, who's the messenger of the covenant? Well, obviously, we've already said it's the Messiah. It's the Lord Jesus who is going to come and establish the new covenant in his blood. He's called the messenger of the covenant because he was establishing the new covenant. Hebrews twelve twenty four tells us that Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. He's the object of the new covenant. He's the basis of the new covenant. And he's the one who establishes the new covenant. So consequently, he's called the messenger of the covenant. When Christ came in fulfillment of these scriptures, he was like a refining fire and like a fuller's soap. Fuller was the the person who did all the laundry back then. Well, I did special laundry, I guess. Most people probably just went down to the river and did their own. But if you had some special things that needed to be cleaned very well, you took them to the fuller. And uh, he had this special fuller soap that he would use to clean things with. So he was this messenger of the covenant was coming as a refining fire, like a fuller soap, purifying and cleansing God's people. He smelted and purified the Jewish people of his day like a refiner separating out the, the impure from the pure. I'm talking about when Christ came. This is what he did, you see. In the Jewish nation at that time, he was refining, he was purifying what was there, separating out the impure from the pure. And like a launderer's washing and bleaching a cloth, a, a dirty cloth, he would get the spots out, all the all the stains uh, until not a spot remained. Well, I'll talk a little bit more about this aspect of Christ's work in a moment. But first I want to zero in on this phrase, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. He will suddenly come to his temple. So here's here's this promise of this messenger of the covenant coming suddenly to his temple. Uh, This did not mean that he would come soon, but rather that he would come unexpectedly. In fact, there were four centuries of silence with no prophetic voice from the time Malachi said this. 
no Messiah coming, no prophetic voice for four centuries. That's a long time if you think about it. I mean, the United States hadn't been around there that long. Um, they were waiting, but suddenly, suddenly and unexpectedly, after a long and dark night of waiting, a little baby was brought to the temple by his parents, Joseph and Mary. When he was brought there, there was an old man named Simeon. And that man took the baby in his arms and blessed God, saying, Now, Lord, thou dost let thy bondservant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared in the presence of all people, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and a glory of thy people Israel. In other words, now after so long a time, the Lord had come to his temple. Simeon goes on to say, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel. That's just another way of saying that the Lord is going to do a purifying work amongst the people of, of Israel, amongst his professing people. You could say it this way, he was going to do some house cleaning. The Lord was going to do some real house cleaning there in the temple. <clears throat> Most of the priests and prominent Jewish leaders fell. And insignificant fishermen and common people were ri raised up to be God's true followers. He was, this child was appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel. He was purifying. He was going to purify what was taking place there in Israel. Um, again, who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. Now, that's the first instance where we could think of Jesus suddenly coming to his temple. And there were a number of other times in his ministry when he came into the temple uh, teaching and preaching and healing. But uh, perhaps the clearest examples of Christ fulfilling these scriptures about the messenger of the covenant coming suddenly to purify his temple are found in the two times that Christ came in righteous indignation to cleanse the temple. The first time early in his ministry, he took a scourge of cords and drove out the sheep and oxen and money changers, drove them right, right out of the temple. He came, I mean, those people were surprised when he showed up that day. He suddenly came and said, everybody get out of here with this junk, basically. Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house of merchandise, and he, they scattered, got them out of there. That was at the, really at the beginning of Christ's ministry. And the second time he does this is towards the end of his ministry, and he comes again to cast out those that are buying and selling in the temple. Um, well, let's, let's look this one up in Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11 and verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began casting out those who were buying and selling in the temple. 
and overturning the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. He said, you get out of here, and I don't want any, any more of you coming in. I mean, this, again, suddenly coming to his temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. There's that idea again. In every place, incense is going to be offered in my name. God's taking his truth now to the world, not just to uh, select one nation. My house shall be called a, a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it to a robber's den. And the chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for all the multitudes were astonished at his teaching. So, what Jesus was doing here is he was beginning to redefine the whole idea of the temple. But don't miss this. He's beginning to redefine the whole meaning of the temple whole idea of what it meant. It was going to be, from then on, it was going to be a spiritual house of worship for all people. God's true temple, a spiritual house of worship for all people. In fact, this physical temple that Jesus was throwing these people out of was soon to be destroyed. That happened in 70 AD. And God's true people would worship in spirit and truth wherever they were. He was redefining the whole idea of what the temple was all about. When a person is justified through faith in Christ, through this messenger of the covenant, that person becomes a holy temple. We're told that in 1 Corinthians 3.16. A holy temple cleansed by the blood of Christ. We're told this in Titus 2.14. He gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. He's purifying the sons of Levi. That's what's happening all around the world today as people become Christians. He's purifying, and, and God works in their heart. He's purifying the sons of Levi. In a spiritual sense, this refining work is going on throughout all of church history among the people of God. And again, let me just state the point that I said was the main thing I want to get across. God, Christ continues to come to his temple, that is, Christians individually and corporately, purifying the sons of Levi, refining them in their love so that they may present to the Lord, offerings and righteousness. This is what's going on. This is a fulfillment of these verses that we're uh, reading about here. The fulfillment is in the church of God, God's people. This purifying work is a one-time event in terms of our justification, but it is also an ongoing process in terms of our sanctification. Christ comes to us and repeatedly repeatedly cleanses his temple by his spirit. Hopefully he's doing some of that even right here this morning, as we said, and, and contemplate these thoughts. While we're still here on earth, there's always more refining to be done. 
right down on the heart level. Um, Proverbs tells us this, The refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. The Lord refines the heart. The Lord purifies the heart. As we search his word, his word searches us, and we grow in respect to salvation. More and more we're being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. That's First Peter 2, uh, 1-5, or right in that area. But just think about this. Peter says we're being built up as a spiritual house, that is, a temple. He's coming to his temple. For a holy priesthood, that is, the sons of Levi. He's going to purify the sons of Levi. To offer up spiritual sacrifices, that is, offering up uh, offerings in righteousness. All that is in fulfillment of these verses, you see. Offering up spiritual, uh, offering up uh, offerings in righteousness. Now, I think it's important that we remember that we're not passive in this purification process. We're not just uninvolved. God does it just automatically. This refining and cleansing is God's work, but he does it by stirring us up and enabling us to take hold of his promises of life in Christ. As Paul says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Isn't that amazing the way he said it? He says that, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit. The point I'm trying to make here is that we have to be serious about our sanctification. This is something God has promised, but it's also something that we're very much involved in. Pursue holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. That's a command. Pursue sanctification without which no man shall see the Lord. So the question then is, does God cleanse us or do we cleanse ourselves? Of course, the answer is both. John Owen, Puritan preacher from quite a long time back, put it this way. He said, God works in us and with us, not against us or without us. In other words, we're very much involved in this. By his spirit, he makes his will our desire. He makes his will our desire. One songwriter put it this way, Living God, consuming fire, burn the sin from my life. Make your will my desire. Take my life in your hands. Purify me with your blood till I shine far brighter than purest gold in your eyes. We must work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. We work out our salvation because God works in us. We work it out because he's worked it in. We must and will fight the good fight of faith against the world, the flesh, and the devil. We will fight to keep from falling, and we'll fight if we fall to get up again, and we will get up again. 
by the grace of God. The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong. Why? Because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. If he falls, he will not be totally cast down and won't fall headlong because the Lord is the one who holds his hands. That's uh, Psalm 37. Psalm 145 says this, The Lord sustains all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. So we have these tremendous promises. God never makes us sensible of our weakness except to give us his strength. What's that mean? Well, that means that despondency and despair or depression over our failings and our falls is never the way to victory. Rather, a simple, peaceful, prayerful turning to God is the way of progressive sanctification, the way that the sons of Levi are purified. Hope in God and put no confidence in the flesh and yourself or, as Psalm 42 says, hope in God, for you shall pray, again praise him for the help of his presence. You praise him because he helped you through this thing. He will purify the sons of Levi. He will do that. The work of progressive purification of his temple is not just for individual Christians. It's also for the church as a family of God's people. Paul emphasizes this in Ephesians 2. Let's turn to Ephesians. Two nineteen. Kind of jumping in here. So then you will no long you are no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built, to get, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And here's the part I want to zero in on. In whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple of the Lord. So there's a sense in which the individual Christian is the temple of the, of the Lord, there's also a sense in which the church itself is a temple uh, of the Lord. The whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So you see this concept of the church itself being purified, being built uh, through the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, so we're not, when we think of the temple here, God coming to his temple, it's not just the individual Christian that's progressively sanctified, but it's the church itself, God working in it, make, confirming the, the people of God as a, as a corporate group more and more into the image of Christ. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So there's just a couple of verses out of Ephesians. The point here is that he's the great fuller, the great launderer, the great purifier of his people. In no area of our individual life or 
church life is left untouched. He's purposed to do this. He's purposed to refine the sons of Levi. And he's not going to leave any area untouched. But most of all, he wants to purify us in our love. If you're still there in Ephesians, just uh, using that as an example, the book of Ephesians, uh, note how he says this, chapter 4 and verse 16. Well, let's start at verse 15. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects unto him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, see we're talking about God working in the body here, the church, in whom the whole body being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. God's working to build us up in love uh, as his people. And then you see this again, skip down to Verse 31 of chapter 4. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. So, working in us, purifying us, especially in this area of love. God is always working to purify his church in, his, in its love for him and our love for one another. We can do a lot of things right, but if we get that wrong, we've got the main thing wrong. We miss the main thing. And that's why later on in, in the New Testament, to this same church at Ephesus, and we just read these verses about love, um, we see in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds you did at first. Uh, if you read that account there in Revelation, God mentions a number of things that they were doing right. Uh, but they'd fallen in the main thing, which had to do with their love for, for the Lord and for one another. So the primary way God purifies the sons of Levi is by purifying them in their love for him. The only way any person can offer an offering in righteousness is if it's offered from a heart of love. So this is what God's working on in all of our lives as Christians. Uh, one song put it this way, Give me thy heart, says the Father above, no gift so precious to him as our love. No gift so precious. You can do a lot of things in the name of Christianity, but if there's not love, it's, well, Paul says it's nothing. No gift so precious to him as our love. This is really the important area of purification in our individual lives and in the life of the church. Our love for God and love for one another. So, 
try to bring this to a conclusion. I think it's important when we study any area of Scripture, any particular section of Scripture, to keep the big picture in mind. So what's the big picture here? The big picture as we think about this section in Malachi is people were made to have a loving relationship with God, loving communion with God. The people of the Old Covenant repeatedly turned from that loving fellowship with God. God sent the messenger of the covenant to bring in a new covenant in his blood to redeem his people from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, a people purified in love. That's the big picture. The real offering we make to God in the new covenant is ourselves. That's the offering. We give him our heart. We give him our lives. We give him ourselves. And we make that offering because Christ first offered himself for us. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. So the point I'm trying to make here is just to zero in, especially on that phrase, he will purify the sons of Levi, refining them like silver and gold so that they may present offerings to the Lord in righteousness, love offerings of ourselves to him who loved us. I think that's the real import of this section that we're looking at here, the real spiritual application and understanding of, of this, this section. The scriptures we've looked at here in Malachi will ultimately be fulfilled when Christ comes again at the end of the age. Then we will be fully purified, saved to sin no more. How will that happen? Well, it's all through the blood of the eternal covenant. Christ is the messenger of that covenant, and he's brought that covenant. He's established that covenant. And it all has to do with his work for us and in us. Then the messenger of the covenant, when Christ comes again, will have completely purified his people, body, soul, and spirit, so that they can present to the Lord offerings and righteousness forever and ever. That's what we'll be doing, presenting to the Lord offerings and righteousness for all eternity. So this is a tremendous, tremendous section. I think as my presentation was rather jumbled, but maybe there's a few thoughts there that if you go back and reread this section, it'll help you to, to uh, have an appreciation for how tremendous these, this reality of God purifying the sons of Levi is for each one of us here and for us as a church. It's a tremendous section of Scripture.